Hi, Jonathan Gruber here. There is no profanity in today's show. However, the subject matter is really tough and totally unsuitable for children. So if there are kids in the room, it's headphones time. This is The State We're In from WBEZ. I'm Jonathan Gruber, and today's show is called Torture Radio. Hello? Hello, miss. Hello? Hello. It's early in the morning, and Madame Estefanos is sitting in the kitchen of her apartment in Stockholm. She's getting her kids ready for the day. The truth is, she's already at work. Dear listeners, this is Madame Estefanos, broadcasting from Stockholm, Sweden. Welcome to my program, Voices of Eritrean Refugees. Broadcasted every Thursday on Radio Arena. Renan is comforting her little son on her lap while simultaneously speaking into a microphone that's attached to her laptop, and she's got a cell phone cushioned into her chair. <laughs> Medon was raised in Sweden, but she's speaking to Grinja, the language of Eritrea, where she's originally from. But the woman Meron is speaking with is not in Sweden or Eritrea. She's being held for ransom in a house somewhere in Egypt's Sinai Desert, and she is being tortured. Meron is the host of an internet and shortwave show called The Voices of Eritrean Refugees, and she gets dozens of calls like this a week, every hour of the day. End of 2010, somebody contacted me and said that his brother was being kidnapped and uh, held hostage in Sinai. And they were asking $20,000 uh, for his release. Even though I've known about the kidnappings, but I've never came in contact with any hostages. So he said, if you don't believe me, you know, call them and talk to the hostages directly. And he gave me the phone number. So I was like, should I believe him or not? And so I woke up early in the morning and... Um, I used my landline phone to call them, and when I spoke to them, so it was just, uh, I got really touched by the, they were crying, and the stories they told me were very shocking to me. So I asked if it was okay that I broadcasted it in my program, and they said fine, and um, from there, that's it. You know, I got stuck because of the display, they saved my number and started calling me like every minute, and other hostages heard about me, then... Suddenly, you know, from one group of hostages that I was interviewing, it became like 20, 30, 40. So here I am until today, I'm interviewing them. How many do you think you've spoken with? Hundreds and hundreds, yeah. You don't even know how many? I stopped counting. I mean, I remember the first five groups, how many there were, but after that, it just became hard to keep up with the numbers. A little background, Eritrea is an impoverished dictatorship. Thousands leave there every year fleeing persecution or just looking for something better. The most common route is via neighboring Sudan through Egypt and up onto Israel. There are something like 30,000 Eritreans in Israel. Bedouin tribes in neighboring Sudan and Egypt kidnap Eritrean refugees, men, women, even kids. They bring them to houses in Sinai and chain them. Then they hand them cell phones and tell them to call their families to beg for ransom money. They usually torture them while they are on the phone. And now they know Marin will broadcast their voices. They call her up, too. 
my phone rings on 24 hours almost, so everybody's tired of my phone ringing all the time because I know nobody's calling to say, hi, how are you? Can we have a coffee? It's always, sorry to disturb you, but I need you to, just right now as I was eating lunch, so somebody called me and said, I said, I can't speak because I'm in Netherlands and can you call me back on Friday? He said, it can't wait because some people are kidnapped and they are about to be sold, so can you help them? That happened just now over lunch. Yes, yeah. Hello. Hello? The constant calls are making her children crazy, but Maran says she simply cannot ignore these people. Lives are at stake. Take the example of a young woman named Hariti. I first heard about Hariti when um, I called to speak to some hostages that I knew uh, that uh, that was calling me constantly. So when I called, I heard a baby cry or something. And then I said, do I hear a baby? And they said, yeah, somebody just gave birth. And I was shocked. I said, can I speak to one of them? And so they passed the phone to Hariti. She told me she just gave birth. And she even told me that half hour early before she gave birth, she was actually tortured so much. She went into labor as she was chained. Then I said, how did that go? I mean, you didn't need help. She said, God was there by miracle. You know, everything went fine. She was not in labor for long. The baby just came. Then she explained to me that she had a husband in Israel. He left first because he was uh, one of the political prisoners. And so uh, he escaped and ended up in Sudan. And she was only four months pregnant. So she decided to join him, even though he was telling her it's dangerous. But she said uh, life without him is not worth it. So she decided to flee. And as soon as she made it to Sudan, before they were reunited, she got kidnapped and taken to Sinai. And then he found out that his wife was kidnapped. So he went to Sinai. He actually paid somebody to take him to Sinai to rescue her. Uh, But once he got to Sinai, he saw it was impossible. He couldn't find her because there were so many houses and it was too dangerous for him. So he ended up in Israel uh, and they imprisoned him. And then he told his story to a judge what had happened to him, that he had no intention of coming to Israel to begin with, that he came looking for his wife. So the judge was nice enough and uh, told him, "Okay, uh, we'll give you two months to go outside and collect money for her. And then you are back to prison. Israel's newly toughened prevention of infiltration law means that asylum seekers can spend up to three years in jail if they make it into the country. But after Hariti's husband was given leave by a judge, he immediately called his wife. This is audio from a documentary about Meran's work called The Sound of Torture. And in this scene, Hariti's husband is sitting on the side of a street in Tel Aviv, speaking to Hariti on a cell phone. She tells him she's being tortured constantly. The baby is sick and she says she's given up. Mm. Let me walk you through, I mean, how her daily life was. Uh, She just gave birth to a newborn baby. She didn't even have anything to cut the umbilical cord. She didn't have any clothing for the baby. So when she got kidnapped, she had like a pyjamas or something. So she had to cut the pyjamas and make it like a dress kind of for the baby. And uh, there's no bed. I asked her, what do you do with him when... um, when they are torturing you, she said, yeah, I put him in the floor, he's crying. They would hang her in the sailing for hours, and then they would hit her feet. They would burn her with molten plastic bags. They would rape her, um, gang rape her many times. 
um, and they would call her husband and make him listen as she's being tortured and as she's being raped and everything. So it's a mental torture also to the loved one, not only to her. So this is the kind of life she had. That's why in the film she said, I've had enough. I mean, she just wanted to die because it was unbearable and she didn't think she could go on. Meran managed to get together donations to pay Hariti's ransom, $30,000. Hariti was freed at the Israeli border, where she was captured in jail by Israeli border guards, then driven back to the Egyptian border, jailed by the Egyptian authorities, and eventually deported back to Eritrea. This sounds like bad news, but actually, this is a best-case scenario. Hariti and her baby are alive and healthy, at least physically. More often than not, it doesn't end well. Meron thinks up to 10,000 Eritreans have been killed by their captors. <laughs> Meron promises each person she's helped to free that she will come and see them in Israel. And then the day came that she actually did it. There's this scene in the film where you, you walk in and you meet this big group of people it seems like almost most of whom or all of whom even you helped to free, they all saw you and they jumped up and and they hugged you when they realized it was you. Yeah, it was a very special feeling. At least three or four of them, I never thought they would come out alive because they were so weak that we were just waiting. Any second that person is going to die. So to see that person coming out alive and to actually meet them was very like a miracle for me. So... um, there was one girl there. She's just 14. And actually, I paid for her with a collection that I received. And she was younger that I pictured her in my head. And I start thinking, you know, poor girl. She was raped the first day she arrived and everything went to my head. And she was crying because it also I also reminded her of what went on there. And so it was very, you know, she refused to let me go. And she said, you're my mother, you're my mother. And I said, yeah, you know, I have a son who's 13 and she's almost the same age like him. So it was very emotional. Yeah. In that same park, there's this one woman you saw named Semhar. She was so happy to see you because you talked her through her whole ordeal. And then first she seemed normal and then her brother touched her and she completely freaked out and she fell and she started to scream like she was right back in that house. And she only calmed down when you told her to pray in the name of Jesus. What was going on? She's the first female uh, that I interviewed, and she's one, the reason that I got involved. Her cries was what got me really. I cannot let go of this thing. I said I have to continue. And, you know, I just expect like the others. You know, we're gonna hug and cry maybe, but not that. So when she fell, it was really scary. It seems to me that these people are terribly traumatized and. It's not surprising that many of them have, I'm not a psychologist, but it seems like post-traumatic stress disorder. Is there anybody to help people like Semar there? No, that's the sad part, that um, there is no one. I mean, these people, when a hostage calls me after his release and says, uh, Meron, thank you for everything, I made it to Israel, so I'm thinking... Yes, they are in heaven now, you know. Somebody's going to receive them with an open arms and tell them, don't worry, your problems are over. But when I 
went to Israel was shocking to me. I mean, they arrive, you see, they have all kind of wounds. You know, some of them have lost two hands. Some of them have lost a feet or something. There are all kind of burn marks in their body. Yet, you know, they let them in, give them a visa. It says you're not allowed to work, no medical treatments, no housing or welfare. Basically, they tell you, go to the park and die. We don't care. On the other hand, not to seem like the bad guy here, they are illegal aliens. Yeah, but these are people that have no intention to begin with to get to Israel. These are people that were kidnapped forcibly. and They weren't heading to Israel? No. That wasn't the ultimate goal? No. What is the ultimate goal? Just to Sudan. Sudan? Yes. I have to stop here and say that this is the only part of the interview that seems inconsistent with the facts. Interviews with Eritreans in Israel reveals that they see the Jewish state, even with all the problems they have there, as safer than Eritrea, Sudan, or Egypt. While the Eritrean refugees' final destination may be in dispute, what's happening to them is not. And this is why Miron decided to actually go to Sinai and look for the kidnappers. I had to go there to get the peace of mind. Had to? It's just, it's something that I say to myself, uh, unless I go there and breathe uh, air in Sinai and touch the ground that they touched, so it's, uh, I will never get the whole thing. So I just felt, you know, I have to I have to go there. I mean, And when you told your family that you were going to the Sinai, they said, great idea. <laughs> no, I did not tell my family. No. You didn't even tell them? No. Because you have kids, right? Uh, yes. You have friends and family. You didn't tell anybody you were going? No. Why? Just, Why not? Because they will try to talk me out of it. So uh, I knew that uh, nobody would understand the feeling that I had. So um, I just told a friend of mine who was babysitting my kids, I'm going there and... For two purposes. One was, uh, actually three. One was to, to pay my respect to those that died there, those that I was very close to. Secondly was to try to, to, to talk to the people in the area, to try to convince them to help us to stop this, to explain our situation. And third was, it's crazy, but I also wanted to get kidnapped. And, what? Yes, that was... Uh, what do you mean? I just felt, you know, these people, uh, when you go to international community, I mean, you talk to State Department or EU parliamentarians, and they tell you, it's sad what's happening, but these are Eritreans, you know, it's uh, a matter of Eritrean kind of thing. And I was thinking, yeah, I'm Swedish, I'm European citizen, so if I get kidnapped, then I'll bring a lot of media attention. So I had a friend of mine arranged that she would make a phone call to journalists and um, the Swedish embassy and things like that. And um, we found um, an insurance company. Company actually that could pay ransom of one million dollars if I get kidnapped, and, um, and so. <laughs> you're, you're smiling because you know how crazy that sounds. Yeah, it's very crazy, but uh, I just because I was not complete, anyways. Uh, I just felt uh, I know it's stupid being a single mother and things, but at the same time, I just felt if I don't do this, I will regret the rest of my life and. I wanted to do my best, everything that I could, and that was what was left that I haven't done. And In the best-case scenario, man, you still might get plastic bags burned onto your back. They could break your feet. They could break your legs. They could gang-rape you. Why would you want to do that to yourself? I don't know. It, it's just um, <clears throat> I'm too involved that... Um, sometimes, you know, I, I do feel what they go through, but I don't really fully understand to what extent they feel. I mean, I was never tortured or something. So it was just something, uh, somehow I felt that um, 
I had to do that, no. Well, no wonder you didn't tell anybody. <laughs> yeah. They knew that you had a martyr complex. Yeah. <laughs> Manon says that she also wanted to get captured because, as a Swedish citizen, her capture would likely garner a lot of international media attention. In the film, Manon dons a headscarf and face veil. Look at me, Karen. I don't know how to drink water. <laughs> she has her computer with her, full of recordings of the voices of hostages and the voices of the kidnappers. She hooks up with the local Bedouin fixer and drives through the flat orange Sinai desert, looking for the houses of where the refugees are being held. Manon says these houses have been described to her hundreds of times. First, she stops at the remains of an Eritrean camp. There are sandals left behind and Eritrean clothing caught on twigs. Yeah. It's Eritrea. Eh, Bahari. Say, Sritsi, integrinya in my language. Here. Then, she spots the houses. It's exactly here, I think. This place. These are the houses where they are. Midong goes right up to the house and, remember, the hostages all have cell phones. So she makes a call to see what happens. The feeling was awful because actually I was like 10 meters outside of one house and uh, so I'm calling the hostages inside and it's just we can see the window to the houses and we saw the guards and the guards saw us. One of the hostages is telling me they're getting nervous because they see something in the window so they're watching us. He's like, oh, they are nervous, and I'm, I'm also getting nervous. And I was saying, you know, try to find a way to escape, and then uh, we'll wait for you outside. We're just outside, you know. And so the guards came out. They hid their faces, you know, about four of them came out. They had guns with them. If it wasn't for the fixer, then we would have been kidnapped for sure. His uncles are the torturers and the traffickers, so uh, when they saw who he was and... Why didn't you just offer yourself to them? I mean... In a way, we kind of did, you know, in another place, you know, it was just uh, overwhelming everything. And you're so sad that you even have to make fun of it. So we were screaming, you know, we want to get kidnapped, you know, and uh, the camera woman, she was French. And so we were saying, you know, okay, the French might rescue us if we get kidnapped. (laughs) (laughs) The levity ended when their fixer gets a call inviting them to a Bedouin dinner. As we walk in, somebody said in my language, have a seat. And I said, did I hear that or am I imagining that, you know? So I'm looking at the translator, who's Eritrean also, I, in our language. I said, uh, did you hear that somebody said something, a word in our language? Uh, these people could be one of the traffickers or something. So comes one of the guys, he says, yeah, we are one of them in our language. And it's very fluent. And we're like, oh, my God. Uh, We are in their houses, you know, we are eating dinner with these people. Very uncomfortable to be in that house to sit with two traffickers. Later on, I found out one of them was one of the biggest traffickers that have killed a lot and the cruelest of all. And they said, yeah, we heard you have voices of the traffickers. I said, yeah, and they wanted to listen. So I was letting them from my laptop, you know, they could hear their voices. It was a very weird feeling. The Eritrean guy, my translator, was like, do you guys have weapons? And one thing we learned when we were in that area is everybody brags about how many AK-47s they have and machines and things like that. So they're like showing us gladly 
how many. So the translator just grab one and <laughs> put bullets on it. And he's thinking if something happens, at least we'll fight, you know. You know, one was joking of how many people he killed. And it's, I mean, he's, we kept getting shocked because he... Uh, he's bragging. Yeah, he's bragging. And, to you? Yes. And there was a very uncomfortable feeling. and we, Uncomfortable? Yeah, very weird because uh, you are in there. You weren't angry? Yes, but uh, at that moment, you know, uh, you just want to get out of that house. You don't want... Are you scared? Uh, yeah, because this is not... Uh, if something happens, it's not being held hostage or something. It could be just kill you off and take your computers, the evidences that you have and whatever, you know, because I was stupid enough to take all the evidences with me. How, how did you get out of that? Then, you know, it got late. Uh, we spoke for many hours and things and... Um, at last, I I said I'm tired. I want to get out. I want to go. They keep saying, "No, stay, stay, stay." No, I said, "No, I've had enough. Now I'm tired." And we were really happy that we came out of alive from that house. The trip to Sinai did not free any of the refugees, so Miron went back to Sweden. With so many of her people still in captivity, the calls still coming in and so little being done, I asked Manon what keeps her going. You speak to people all day who are suffering indescribable levels of torture. I mean, when I look at your face now during this interview, it is viscerally painful for you to be doing this, and yet you subject yourself to it every day. How are you? Well, <clears throat> um, I'm a changed person. I mean, if I look back four years ago, how my life was and how I am now, it's totally different. Changed? Totally. I mean, the way I see life, how I used to see it before and how I see it now is... Uh, how do you see it now? I see a lot of cruelty in this world. But at the same time, I see so many good as well. That's what keeps me going, you know. When the four kids were kidnapped and I'm sitting there and thinking, how am I going to solve this problem? And then this woman, my Norwegian friend, goes to her bank, takes out a loan for $20,000 and says, here, I'm selling my Harley Davidson because it's luxury, so here's for you. And this woman, you know, she's not even Eritrean. She's Norwegian. She's not connected to anything. But for her, just a simple email, I just explained to her. And I did not ask for money or anything. But then she shocks me the next morning saying, the bank approved my $20,000 loan. So here it is. And do whatever you want with it, you know, kind of thing. So I love those moments. I mean, thank God for these kind of people that remind me the, the goodness of humanity as well, you know. So You didn't really answer my question, which was... How are you? <laughs> yeah, um, I don't know how I am. Um, I mean, I say to myself, when the last hostage is freed, I will need psychological help or something because you have heard so many horrible stories that sometimes, you know, I'm interviewing somebody on live and I'm crying more than the hostage him himself. And people are saying, oh, my God, we feel more sorry for you than the hostages. So, of course, yeah, I might have depression and things, but I'm too busy to realize I'm depressed or something because when you don't have time, then you don't know it. So probably if I would sit and do nothing for three days, then it would come and knock me off. So, <laughs> but yeah. That day might be coming, you know. Yes, yeah, I'm sure, yeah. This is a, a very grim story, Meron, without any real resolution. Where does this leave you? 
My dream is to be able to hold everyone that was involved accountable one day. Then that's when I say my job is done. Marana Stefanos, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And good luck. Thank you. Thanks. <sighs> yeah. Most of the audio from this program comes from the documentary The Sound of Torture. And, of course, we'll have links to that documentary on our website, tswi.biz. I spoke with Miran Estefanos at the Movies That Matter Festival in The Hague. This edition of The State We're In was produced by myself, with special thanks to Alison Shally and Joe Dassault at WBEZ Chicago. Tell us what you think of our program at our website, tiswi.biz, T-S-W-I or friend us on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash T-S-W-I.org. And why not review us on iTunes? That really helps the show. I'm Jonathan Gruber, and I'll see you in two weeks for the next and last in this first season of The State We're In podcast from Chicago public media.